0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada. Today we're continuing Dr. Newfeld's series, The Gospel Alternative to the Cultures of Men. And we'll be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1-7, to 7, as we look at the message entitled, To Marry or Not to Marry? And just to mention that part of what Dr. Newfeld shares and teaches today is related to the biblical teaching in Corinthians on the role of sex in marriage the content may not be suitable for young listeners. Let's join Dr. Neufeld now.
1: Comedian Jerry Seinfeld was once asked why he wasn't married, and he said, no healthy person would want the neglect that I have to offer. Well, a husband once asked his wife if she had ever been in love before she met him, and she thought for a moment, and she said, No, darling, I, I must say that I once genuinely respected a man for his great intelligence, and I once admired another man for his remarkable courage, and I was once captivated by a man by his good looks and charm. But in your case, honey, I mean, how else could I explain it but love? You know, a great many single people spend their time wishing they were married. A great many married people spend their time wishing they were single. Well, who's right? Which is better way to live? Is there an ideal? Interestingly enough, Christians have wrestled over this. The Catholic Church developed with the teaching that singleness and celibacy is the ideal life. In fact, they taught that the individual who was celibate could attain a higher level of spirituality and was more likely to see the spiritual side of Scripture. On the other hand, Many evangelical churches today argue that marriage is the ideal life. In fact, it's still relatively rare to see an unmarried Protestant pastor. Well, what does God say about this issue? You know, If I entitled my address, To Marry or Not to Marry, and as Shakespeare would say, that is the question. So let's read 1 Corinthians 7, 1 to 5. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, before we get into a study of this text, let's get some helpful background. If you've been listening to this series on Corinthians, you've already heard me give you a bit of a background of the city of Corinth, especially that the fact that Corinth was a very sensuous place. In the ancient world, to call someone a Corinthian girl was to suggest that she was a prostitute. To say that you were going to Corinthianize meant that you were going to have sex outside of marriage, so Corinth was a sexually charged city. But there's something else you should know. In the wider Roman Empire of that day, divorce was a very common practice. It was not impossible to have been married 20 times or more. And so marriage, at best, was considered a very fluid situation. Also, the roles of men and women were in flux. A very active and vocal feminist movement had developed. And so men and women often played the same roles and openly competed with each other in everything from business to politics to sports. Homosexuality was fairly common. Both men and women were fairly determined to live their own lives and get what they wanted out of life, regardless of any marriage commitments that they had. So this put a great deal of pressure on believers. Remember that Christians don't live in isolation away from our culture. Whether we like it or not, the wider culture does have a great deal of influence upon us. It influences the way that we see the world, and and it certainly influences our values and what we think to be right and wrong. And sometimes the clash between the values of the culture and the demands of the Scripture leave us with a great deal of confusion. And so the Corinthians decided to write Paul about the issue of marriage. You'll notice that this is how the chapter begins. We also know that because of the Greek philosophy of the body, in which the body was felt to be a lower level of existence, some Greeks felt that the bodily expression of sex was bad and needed to be suppressed, and some felt that since bodily existence was a lower level of existence, whatever the body did and desired was no matter of concern at all. If the body wanted food, feed it. If the body wanted sex, satisfy it, perhaps even with a temple prostitute. Well, that was the discussion in the wider Greek-speaking world, and that was the culture that the Corinthian believers lived in. But what did God have to say? And how did God want them to live? Now, if all of this sounds contemporary, it's because it is. I personally find the parallels between the 1st century and the 21st century to be profound. Our world is hauntingly like the world of that time. And indeed, these instructions apply just as well to our world as it did to theirs. What is God's word to us about marriage and singleness? Let's begin by noticing that Paul teaches that there are benefits in remaining single. Look again at verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, a literal reading of this verse says, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. This idea of touching has the connotation of a sexual touch, caressing, to touch in such a way as as to move towards sexual relations. Verse 1 has been a very controversial verse throughout church history. The teaching of stressing celibacy came from this very verse— The early Roman Catholic Church taught that celibacy was the ideal for everyone. So, for instance, St. Jerome said, If it is good for a man not to touch a woman, it must be bad to do so, and therefore celibacy is a holier state than marriage. But interestingly enough, the word good that Paul uses in verse 1 has a wide range of meaning. It can mean morally good, or it can mean a superior morality. But it can also mean beautiful, or it can mean having an advantage. And since in Genesis 2, verse 18, the Bible does say, it is not good that a man should be alone, we're left with a conundrum. What can Paul mean by good? Is he contradicting the Old Testament? Is he agreeing with those elements in Greek society that approved of rigid discipline of the body, that is, of asceticism? You know, was the early monastic movement, right, in teaching that only the celibate could have the higher life of God. If we were able to write to Paul today the way the Corinthian church could then, we might ask, Paul, what did you mean when you said it was good not to touch a woman? Now, in order to understand that, you have to let Paul speak for himself. Let's peek ahead all the way to 1 Corinthians 7, 32 to 35, where Paul writes, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay a restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Now, from this passage, we begin to see what Paul means by good. He means that there are benefits to remaining single, benefits you would not have and will never have again if you decide to get married. And Paul mentions two of them. The first of these benefits is freedom. That's what verse 32 teaches us. In fact, if you are married, chances are you have bills that no single person can even imagine. And with that comes anxiety. And if you're single, there's nothing preventing you right now from getting all the training that you need and heading overseas and giving yourselves to mission or to feeding the poor or getting down to a gospel mission in a downtown core of a city on a cold night and using your freedom till all hours of the morning to serve others. No one's going to ask you where you were all night if you're single and you're lonely chances are you've not poured your freedom into a life of service to others. You see, Jesus was single. Paul was single. Some of the greatest saints of the church have been single. The late John Stott, who for years served as the rector of All Souls Church in England, by all accounts, was an absolute workaholic. But who cares? I mean, he had no wife and no kids. Then let him be a workaholic to the glory of God. See, there is a freedom to serve Christ that is unique to single people. But Paul also adds a second benefit to remaining single, and this benefit deals with focus. In verse 33, where Paul writes that the married man is anxious about worldly things, he's speaking about the advantage of a single-minded focus. Now, many of you know who Martin Luther was, the famous leader of the Protestant Reformation. Luther was a priest who broke with the Catholic Church married a woman by the name of Katie who used to be a nun, had children with her and by all counts had a wonderful and loving marriage. And I love what he said about his marriage. He said, in domestic affairs I'm led by Katie and all other matters I'm led by the Holy Spirit. Now he meant to be humorous but there was a great deal of truth in what he said and hear me he was not criticizing his wife. He was thankful for her and he, he deeply loved her but he was saying that his focus was divided because he was married, rightfully divided because he was married.
0: There is great freedom in serving Christ that is unique to the single person. But there are advantages to both, being married and single, which Dr. Neufeld will continue to describe next. On behalf of all of us at Back to the Bible Canada, laugh again and in doubt, We want to send out our heartfelt thanks for your financial support in June during our fiscal year end. Your gifts have meant so much in helping us finish well and provide a strong foundation for the months ahead. Your gifts make this daily Bible teaching program possible. It allows us to air right across Canada. It provides the resources to sustain our podcast, mobile application to support the ministries of Laugh Again and our young adult program In Doubt and our international programming. None of these ministries of Back to the Bible Canada would be possible without you and your commitment to Bible teaching. So once again, thank you for standing with us and becoming an essential part of our ministry team. For more information about this ministry, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.
1: All married people do have divided interests. It's not bad. It's just how things are. If you're married, let me remind you of Valentine's Day. Oh, your anniversary, your spouse's birthday, as well as those of your children, as well as the reality that you must invest yourself in your family. It's not bad. That's good, even excellent. But if you're single, you can focus on your outside ministry, and that's also good. See, that's not to say that marriage is bad, but it is to say that there are benefits to remaining single. But there are risks that are associated with being single, and Paul gives two of them. Look again at verse 2. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. And so clearly the first risk of singleness identified by the apostle Paul is not a minor one. It's the risk of sexual pressure. Please understand that remaining single presents itself as a great temptation to some. Later on in verse 8, Paul speaks of those who are loosed from marriage and those who are widows about the challenge of self-control. The point of that section is that marriage presents itself as a relief valve to sexual pressure. I remember years ago a conversation that went something like this. A young man, somewhere between 25 and 29, came forward to a prayer altar, and instead of praying for him, I ended up in a heated discussion with him. Well, why was that? Well, he told me that he was struggling with sexual desire, and the struggle was more than he thought he could bear, for he was struggling to remain pure. He was not sure that he was going to last, and so he said, would you pray for me that my desire would not be as strong as it is? And I I said, I doubted that God would give him that. Instead, I told him that he should follow the biblical counsel. And he asked what that was. And I said, you ought to find a godly, gorgeous woman and fall in love with her and marry her. And then have a good romp in the hay for the rest of your life. Well, he was shocked and he told me he was not ready for that kind of commitment. And I said, well, clearly, your body is telling you that you are. And someone was going to say, well, I'm shocked you talk that way. Yeah. Just to be clear, that's a word that comes from the Bible. Now, let's also be clear. There are all manner of people who have been given mastery over these urges. Jesus put it this way, and it's recorded in Matthew 19, verse 12. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Now, Jesus didn't say that we should emasculate ourselves. But there are both men and women who have learned to gain mastery over their sexual urges and give themselves to a life of celibacy. That's exactly what singleness demands. It is, in fact, a spiritual discipline. Now, before I go further, let me say that God gives great grace in this area. Even married people can have this thrust upon them. Let me say that your spouse should become suddenly ill. Or let's say that you become a widow or a widower. In such a case, celibacy is a discipline you can and must learn. God will call you to remain celibate by His grace. But all of that to simply point out that sexual pressure is a risk associated with remaining single. Now, Paul adds a second risk, and that risk is not sexual pressure, but societal pressure. You know, in a very real way, societal pressure is a risk for both married and the single. See, a great portion of the reasons for the sexual immorality in the Corinthian church was not the inner sexual pressure, but the societal sexual pressure. Look at it this way. Why do you think some men or women commit adultery? It's not inner pressure, for they're married, but outer pressure. And that's true in our society, television, movies, the internet magazines, books, conversations, even the stuff you learn in classrooms give the impression that we all ought to be hopping in and out of bed with someone. It's not about inner pressure. It's about living in a culture that tells us that this behavior is normal and that those who abstain are abnormal. But the single person in this kind of a culture can be looked at as abnormal if they're celibate. And a great pressure can come from friends and classmates, work colleagues, even members of one's family, just to go out and live with someone. So Paul wants us to understand that whereas there are great benefits in remaining single, there are also great risks. But it's not a cakewalk for those who are married either, and the difficulty it ends up being in exactly the same area for married people as it is for single people the difficulty is in the area of sex. In verses 3 to 5, we learn that there are obligations to being married. Now, just so we understand, we're going to do a bit of a word study here. First of all, notice the words conjugal rights in verse 3. It's not a literal reading, and that's unfortunate. Literally, this reads, "...the husband must render to his wife the debt." Or to put it another way, the husband has a debt to pay to his wife, and it is the debt of sexual relations. And the wife has the same debt to pay to her husband. Okay, let's go on to verse 5. Here the word that reads deprive is often translated as the word defraud in the rest of the New Testament. It means to withhold a payment of a debt. For instance, the same word is used in James 5, verse 4, used in a different way. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. So the phrase kept back by fraud is the same word that in our text is translated as deprived. Well, then what do we make of this? Paul is saying that to married persons, you have a sexual debt to your spouse. Now, does that sound strange to your ears? Now, I know it might, because there are single people out there listening to me who might be saying, you know, I'd love to get married and start paying off that debt, but hold on for a moment. Now, the older marriage vows that a young man and a woman would say to each other on their wedding day was simply this, with my body, I will honor thee. Now again, immediately, some of us are thinking, amen, this is one of the happiest debts I will ever pay. You know, I've even heard some remark with alarm, I'm probably behind on my debt payments. I have a lot of work to catch up. Well, I know all of that funny stuff and we laugh about it, but behind that comes a very serious side to the marriage vow. Look again at verse 4. The wife, does not have authority over her body, and then later, the husband does not have authority over his body. This is the obligation that comes with marriage. The husband and the wife surrender their bodies to each other, and this in and of itself requires trust, sacrifice, and love. In other words, husbands, please hear me, your task is not to please yourself, but to please your wife. I say this because I'll sometimes hear of men making sexual demands on their wives. One of the demands are demands that a husband who is involved in pornography suddenly gets perverse ideas of what he wants his wife to do and makes and demands of her that she submit to him. This is unnatural and it's obscene. In response, Paul is very clear. You, husband, need to recognize that your body now belongs to your wife, meaning that you should be finding out what pleases her, not what pleases you. Stop being selfish. That's ungodly. Start being loving. Start being sacrificial. The same is true the other way around. That's your sexual debt to each other. Now, there's more to it than that. In saying that your body is not your own and that you have a sexual debt, the Bible is laying out God's pattern for marriage. Put it this way, we often speak to single people, making it clear that God's pattern for them is lifelong celibacy. That is true, but I fear we do not often make it clear to married couples that God's pattern for them is lifelong sexual intimacy we should be warning married couples of the ungodly snare of sexless marriages. Sex for a lifetime is also a part of a spiritual discipline that God has designed for you in marriage. Married couples, as you fulfill this command, God smiles on you. His heart rejoices with you. But sometimes, because we are fallen, sex can become a weapon or a bargaining tool. Or the lack of it means the rejection of the other and also the disdaining of the other. And this must never be in a godly marriage. When that happens, selfishness and not concern for the other follows. Well, there is so much more to say about this, and we want you to keep listening, but we can begin to see how God has very specific plans, both for the single and for the married, and that they need to submit their will to His divine will for their lives. John, this is a great
0: teaching. The Word of God speaks about sex and sex in marriage.
1: Yeah, you know, I know that the ancient Jewish rabbis used to assign the uh, book of the Song of Songs, or the Song of Solomon, uh, that you had to reach a certain age of maturity before you were allowed to read that. And so, as a matter of fact, yes, the Bible speaks sometimes very explicitly, and sometimes we need to hear that so that the intimate relations of a man and a woman are not looked at as something that's shameful, but are looked at as being under the holiness and watchful care of God in a way that he blesses uh, us in our own lives in this matter.
0: Thanks so much for your teaching today, John. Right here on Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. The faithful commitment of ministry friends across Canada is overwhelming. Again, this past June, you have successfully joined with us to accomplish our June fiscal year-end campaign goal, and we're filled overflowing with appreciation. Nearing the end of June, we were also presented with a $75,000 match pledge, And for every dollar given, another dollar was matched to support the ministry goals up to $75,000. Can I let you know that the same group has committed to an additional $75,000 match pledge in July? The summer's often a lean month financially, so your gift matched by this pledge will do so much to begin the new fiscal year strong. All of us working together to support the proclamation of God's Word. Join us with your gift this month toward our $75,000 match by calling 1-800-663-2425 or give online
1: at backtothebible.ca.